Welcome to episode 130 of No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg. After her long trek up and down Asia, my co-host Courtney Nguyen has a much-deserved week off from the show, so I've got plenty of room in my car to take all y'all on a little road trip down 100 miles southwest of Washington, D.C. to Charlottesville, Virginia, home of the defending NCAA men's champions, the University of Virginia Cavaliers, who play at the sprawling Boar's Head Inn which has one of the largest indoor tennis facilities in the world with 12 indoor courts. That's roughly double the number of courts available at the concurrent Paris-Bercy Masters. This is thanks in large part due to a donation from Dave Matthews Band violinist Boyd Tinsley. While the facility is huge, the tournament I was there for is tiny. A challenger level tournament on the USCA Pro Circuit with a total prize purse of just $50,000 and a crowd that rarely exceeded 20 people for any match in the three days I was there. There were only two players ranked inside the top 100 competing, number 92 Malik Jaziri and number 99 James Duckworth, both of whom lost in the first round. The majority of players were ranked somewhere between 100 and 300, though the final was ultimately contested between two teenagers ranked below 300, number 320 Tommy Paul, and eventual champion number 533, Noah Rubin. Rubin, uh, qualifier, won only $7,200 for winning eight matches in Charlottesville, $5,000 less than a player received for losing the first round of the Paris Bercy Masters main draw. But more precious than the money at a challenger tournament are the ranking points on offer. For his win through the qualifying draw, Rubin received 83 ranking points enough to catapult him from 533rd in the rankings to over 200 spots higher, a new career high of 317th. Tommy Paul moved up nearly 60 spots to 263rd. While Ruben and Paul were winners, most players left Charlottesville relatively empty-handed and likely not even breaking even on the trip. The Challenger Tour is meant to be a proving ground, a launching pad for the game's best. But for many, the Challenger Tour proves to be a stopping point, a hurdle they're never able to fully clear and reach the ATP World Tour. Without the fame, fortune, and fulfillment of the top levels of the game, the Challenger Tour can be marked by frustration, but also determination and will. So to get a better sense of this world for you guys and the people who make it what it is, today you'll be hearing from four people who occupy different parts of this scene including two players who have had very different career trajectories, Alex Kuznetsov and Ryan Harrison, and a coach who has worked with several players on this tier, Billy Heiser. But first, you'll hear from the man who is the voice of the USTA Pro Circuit, Mike Cation. If you've ever watched a stream of a men's challenger on the USTA Pro Circuit, you've heard Mike, who is embedded in the tour, sitting courtside giving play-by-play in a golf whisper. Few other media around these players and his sleeping every night in a production bus parked outside the tournament venues, along with the rest of the USDA's traveling production crew, Mike is more connected to his tour and his players than any other commentator in the sport. Here he is. Very excited to be joined by Mike Cation, who is the voice of the Challenger circuit, at least in the U.S., for the USDA. Mike, thanks for being here. I'm really honored to be a part of this. It's been a (laughs) lot of fun here, and I'm, I'm glad you guys are giving some exposure to the Challenger level. What, what, so what do you get? You live in this world, obviously, mm-hmm. and you, you see the numbers, people watching it. 
you see the players here. What do you think? What do you think is the sort of awareness of it of this of this level of the tour? And what do you think it should be or or could be? That's a. I mean, the the second part is the more interesting thing. I mean, the people we have watching and 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 are interacting with me on Twitter, it, it's the diehards. I mean, you're yeah. you're having to search out a little bit to find challenger tennis, you know, streaming. Um, it's becoming much more prevalent. The fact that IMG got involved, obviously, what we're doing on the USTA Pro Circuit with full production. Um, it's becoming a more viable thing, and obviously, with streaming becoming so popular, you know, without throughout the entire industry, there are just much more opportunities for people to get involved. And I, I think that's the big thing in terms of where it can go. I, I think more people are starting to get some fan. It's like a fan favorite type of a situation. Yeah. People, you know, we talked a little bit off air about Tim Smichek. You know, people know that name, and so now they're starting to search him out a little bit and find some of his matches. Bjorn Fertangela the same way. Um, and, and some and, of the younger guys who get attention, like a Francis Tiafo just played today. That's exactly right. Like a Tommy Paul who won the French Open Juniors, or uh, Taylor Fritz who won the U.S. Open and has been playing a lot of challengers. And, and uh, there were there have been times when play, a bigger player has scaled down. You had Ernest Golbus right. playing uh, in Vancouver, so I'm guessing that generated some buzz when it he did. had just done, done so did. well there. The problem with it was time-wise, we started, I think, at 8.30 or 9 o'clock at night Vancouver, so West Coast time. Yeah. Uh, in Europe, it's maybe 4 or 5 in the morning, something like that, so we didn't have the big numbers that I think we were expecting. If that matches in the middle of the afternoon and maybe it's a late-night match in Europe, then it's much, much bigger. We, we hear so much about the TV being a factor in scheduling for bigger tournaments. Mm-hmm. Is that the streaming at all play a factor in scheduling for challengers? It does. Um, and I, I, obviously the challenger supervisors handle all of that. But yes, they, I mean, it's it's the same thing though. I, I, I've been around challengers for a long time. I was a press aide in Champaign. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but it, it hasn't really changed in it just that they want to make sure that the challengers, the venues that they have, there are very few that have a, a nice two stadium court set up. So they want to make sure that the biggest matches are obviously on center court. And um, so it it hasn't really changed in terms of what matches get scheduled on center. But they do try to make a, a little bit of a, you know, a push to get everything that's the, the more viewable um, matches on center in terms of the streaming now. So what was the most stream match you ever had? <laughs> in terms of viewers? Yeah. Yeah. Dan Evans and Bradley Klon. And the British yeah. numbers. Those the British the, numbers are huge. They go big, um, yeah. And that was a middle of the day. It was the final in Aptos 2013. Uh, that one was helped Neil Harmon before his controversy. He was very helpful and tweeted out the link uh-huh. at the time. Yeah. And, and again, that was when we were just really kind of starting to get off the ground and, and just to have a 30,000-ish viewership. Evans, I might be pulling this completely wrong. Dan Evans had just won Vancouver. Is he, that right? Just a uh, final. Final, because he, yeah. he was getting some momentum. And yeah. was the first, that, was when, that was the same year he wound up making third round of the Open, right? Correct. So this was like his moment. Yeah, and yeah. then Zagreb the next, um, in February, the, the year after, so he was really making that push towards top 100, and then he's falling. I mean, that's another great example, a guy who was really close to being making that big breakthrough and then all of a sudden has fallen back on some tough times. So what do you make of, of this this world in general? I mean, a lot of people don't get to see the challengers. Most people, most tennis fans never get to go to one, never choose to go to one, I guess. They might, may or may not have one near them they might right. be able to go to, but there's not... They're never, almost never on TV. There's generally not a large awareness level. Uh, you watch the higher levels of the game, too. So mm-hmm. what do you think people should know about what what it is that makes the challengers what they are? I think it's, it's a grind. 
Yeah. Um, and, and let me just say this. The, the, the USTA Pro Circuit, the, the amount of effort that the local tournaments put into making sure that the players are comfortable and have all of the amenities. I mean, it's... It's free housing. I didn't yeah. realize that how, exactly how prevalent that was. It's exactly right. That's huge. It, it really is. And, and the families do such a great job of making sure that the players, if they need a car for a little bit of time, they get a car. They get good meals. And this goes for not only a guy like Bjorn Fertangelo, seated player, but also some of the double specialists. And I, I think... That's the thing. You just don't really understand. It's it's such a community effort. In terms of the players, though, they're grinding. It's tough. I mean, you don't have the same amenities. You do have great families and good support, but it. I mean, it's tough. And if you lose first round, it's five hundred bucks. Um, and I think a lot of fans who are maybe uh, more casual fans just kind of toss this aside, but. These matches mean so much. No. I mean, obviously, with the ranking system as it is, you can have some throwaway first-round losses, and it's not a big deal. But, my goodness. I mean, just to be to be stuck at this challenger level, is it's a real difficult ask of these guys who are 22, 23. I mean, how do you just sustain living at this level? Yeah. Uh, one thing that came up somewhat early, early in the tour, there's been a few, early in the year, so there's been a few instances of different things happening. Uh, with gambling getting mm-hmm. more attention here, and obviously that's a, been a big driver of streaming, sure. online streaming for all levels of the sport. Um, how much are you conscious of that, that a lot of your audience can be that, and how much do you guys at all, not cater to it, but, but stay aware of the gam- and how much gambling is a driving factor in the expansion of streaming? Sure. I mean, I'm, I'm conscious of it, and it's mostly through my Twitter. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know just as well as I do yeah. that the players are, are targets yeah. um, for, for those. And I see it as well. Um, in, in terms of what I do, I try to just stay as far away from it as I possibly can, mostly because I, I just don't want that to factor into how I'm th- approaching a match. I'm certainly aware of who's a favorite, who's not. Um, but I... You know when there are certain matches that kind of look funny. I mean, clearly. Yeah. I mean, it's it's been out there, but I, I just try not to focus on that. I also know seeing these guys week in, week out, a lot of people will say, oh, it's a tank, it's a tank, but they're just having a terrible day. Yeah. I mean, they might have had a terrible night of sleep. They might have just, you know, Jaziri today lost. He was playing in, on the clay uh, a couple of days ago, and so he just came here and he was jet lagged. So people are probably going to say something about his loss to Tiafo today just as a day for him, you know? Let's talk about a day for you. We were talking earlier, you are doing something that I think no one else in tennis is doing Mm -hmm. right now, which is you are traveling the tour as a solo commentator pretty much everywhere. So walk through like your, what your schedule is, how many tournaments do you do a year, Mm -hmm. and all the travel and stuff, and the amenities, or like their (laughs) own, that can entail, and describe, I guess, your your humble abode parked somewhere back there. <laughs> yeah, so I do 16 tournaments a year. Um, I'm employed by the USTA Pro Circuit, and uh, yeah, I'm I am the lone challenger uh, commentator in the world, which is a, a weird thing to think about. Um, USTA Pro Circuit does a lot for me to make sure I, I am traveling in luxury and get to fly to all the sites. But then uh, in between weeks, I'm I'm on a bus. Um, Jeff Keithley runs Live Sports LLC, and they do all the production work. Um, and he bought a luxury coach, actually, the first week that I started, Winnetka 2013, and it's a, a 12-bunk tour bus. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's the same thing Taylor Swift's on. So, <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, but, yeah, we, we pack everything in there in terms of all the production stuff, in terms of to provide the streaming, but it's also our living quarters. It is, it's tight. Um, there are times when you just kind of get stuck. If you're doing three weeks in a row like we're doing this week, you get tired of each other a little bit. Sure. But at the same time, it's... You know, so nice to be able to just to walk out, uh, you know, of your 
if you will, hotel, and you're right at the court yeah. in, in 15 seconds. And on top of that, the, the facilities throughout the USTA Pro Circuit, they do a great job of making sure we have access to bathrooms, to showers, and, and things like that. So we, we do feel a little bit at home, even though we are on a tour bus. Yeah, so you call the batches solo, mm-hmm. which is feeding itself. I mean, everybody who's heard tennis, a lot of the world feeds, especially WTA, have only one commentator yeah. and stuff. And, and you have the different sort of point where you're also almost always sitting courtside. So you have to like regulate your volume, make sure Mm -hmm. players don't hear you, or if they do hear you, that they're not getting mad at what you're saying. I mean, talk about, I guess, the challenge, first of all, of doing it solo, and then also of being the sort of narrator for these guys who uh, maybe can't hear you, or at least care about what you say and know people are watching and getting direct feedback from them being so much up close. more. I think you're probably, you have to be closer to your subjects than any other commentator, especially because of even like an ESPN or something, the people, the broadcasters and the players aren't intermingling as much. There are bigger tournaments and they're separate part, you know, wings of the facility. Right. You're, you're all right there together. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think about it as the fact that we are, I mean, in many ways we're all roommates. Yeah. Um, I had one incident my second week, which was in Binghamton, New York, and literally three feet from the court and Tennis Sandgren, uh, we're in much better terms now, but he was deep in a third set and he's wiping off his face with his towel directly in front of me and just says very clearly to me, I can hear every word you're saying. We talked about it afterwards and basically what he said was he heard me say, Sangren looks frustrated. And he's, <laughs> he says to me afterwards, you know, I... I I wasn't really frustrated, but then I'm thinking, well, he just said I was frustrated. Now I really am frustrated, <laughs> and it gets into his head. Um, so one thing that I do that I don't think many other commentators do, obviously we use a headset, same as anybody else. Mm-hmm. I take one earpiece off so that I'm able to hear you know, my volume courtside and how it's translating to what's mm-hmm. on the court. Um, it, it, it is a grind on days like today. We had six matches. Um, schedule here is long. It is. It's, it's a tough day. And, you know, you just, I, I, I'm guilty of it. There are moments where I tune out a little bit. I mean, I, I'm, I'm human. Yeah. Um, but the, the we're goal, doing a 12 hour shift with very few breaks. Yeah. And we have 10 minutes to go grab a sandwich, use the bathroom, uh, grab some more water. Yeah. That's, that's what we, that's kind of the reality of the situation, but it's what I signed up for because I really enjoy doing this and having this opportunity. You are also commentating on a lot of players. Who, I, mean, I feel like a lot of tennis fans might be able to think they could show up to a, uh, let's say like a Federer Djokovic match and know what they were doing. Sure. You know, they know these guys, they know the big stories, the big arc, their drama. When you have a match today that's, let's say, your first match today, Liam Brody versus Ernesto Escobedo, mm-hmm. how do you how do you prep for that? I mean, you've gotten to the point where you've seen these guys before, but right. where, let's say, it is somebody you have never seen before, maybe even two guys you've never seen before playing each other. How do you and you have to fill all this air? Yeah. How do you how do you do that? Well, for me, the the day starts about three hours before our first match, wow. and it, it's a matter of you know I I use tennis abstract. Uh, quite heavily. Um, that's always a good resource. I'm able now to go back on live stream and watch some matches. If mm. I have some time, um, I, I'm able to watch a, a few games of somebody who I've never seen before because I can go to live stream. I can see, well, they played on this date and it's it's a very simple situation where I can watch for just a couple of minutes and get kind of an idea of what they're trying to do. Um, yeah. So now, again, that's a great opportunity uh, for these coaches and players. Some we were talking about earlier with the viability of streaming. Players and coaches tell me all the time that they're able now to go back and you know use it as a scout um but for me it's just about making sure i know all the basics um know their record on the surface record uh, through the year where they're at points wise ranking wise if i can get at the very very least their very very basic stuff 
I can kind of feel from there. Yeah. What 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 kind of relationships do you establish with these with these guys? Being yeah. being you really do you are a part of this tour mm-hmm. in a way that I don't think other any commentators or really most other media are. I mean, you're really embedded on this traveling thing. So what what sort of have you dealt with that guys and how overall have you found this uh, this group of players to be with? I think um, there is a level of mutual respect that maybe there isn't at some of the higher levels, mostly because I I have incredible amount of respect for their work ethic. I see, I'm able to, because we are so close, I get to see the practice courts just as much as I see the, you know, center and and secondary courts. So I see them and how hard they're working when they're not necessarily playing. I think they also see that I'm willing to put in the hours too. They know I was out there at 10 a.m. today and that we finished at 10 p.m. I think they have that level of respect. I think they also know, um, and maybe this is where my commentary style differs, I'm not a, a guy who likes to trash players. Yeah. I might question some decisions. I think that's part of my job, obviously, but I'm not somebody who's going to ridicule a player like this. I know that there's a reason that they're at the challenger level, be it that they're young, be it that they're having some struggles. I'm not going to trash them for being at this level. Um, and I think that's something that's really, really important, and I think it's something that the players um, kind of respect with how I handle their matches. There you go. Well, thank you very much, Mike. Can people, you tell people briefly how they can watch the challenger's tennis, how to, how to find... You obviously are on Twitter at Mike mm-hmm. C Tennis, but in general, uh, finding challenger matches and knowing when stuff is on, even based stuff like that. Sure. I, with us on the USTA Pro Circuit, you can certainly follow me. You can also follow USTA Pro Circuit uh, via their Twitter at USTA Pro Circuit. All of the matches worldwide now, there are always two courts that are streamed at every challenger. Uh, That's so you can cool. go to livestream.com every day, and if you know where to find an order of play, you're able to kind of see which matches are going to be streamed throughout the day. But um, And it's on the live swing app. The same way exactly. That's that actually a huge thing that the Challenger has going for. I think being on that same app as ATP WTA, that's a big get for Challengers. It really is, and I, I think... I, I hope that this is going to continue to grow. I mean, obviously, I want my career to grow as well. Um, but, I, you know, I think this is a, a great opportunity for a lot of people to see some of the players at their infancy in their career. And um, and also, at the same time, some guys who are kind of at the peak of their career. No. And also guys who are on the downslide. So there are just so many different interesting storylines that I'm just really happy to be a part of it. Cool. Thank you very much, Mike. Thank you, and I appreciate the opportunity. And, and great to see you here at the Challengers <laughs> as well. Well, great to be here. Thank you for so graciously letting me into your world. <laughs> Next up on this Challenger-tastic episode is Alex Kuznetsov, whom I spoke to before his first round match in Charlottesville. He'd eventually go on to beat Takanyi Garagenga and Francis Tiafo to reach the quarterfinals, which makes for a pretty solid week given his year. Alex, who reached a career high of number 120 a couple years ago, had fallen 250 spots lower at number 370 having dropped nearly 200 spots this year alone. Kiev-born Kuznetsov's career has been something of a roller coaster. After a promising junior career that included reaching the final of the 2004 French Open and landed him a million-dollar Nike contract upon turning pro, Alex suffered a major setback less than a year later, when in 2005 he broke his right femur in a car crash and needed surgery that included a titanium rod being inserted into his leg. He would return to tour full-time a year later. Having been playing professionally for over a decade now, 28-year-old Alex has had several brushes with top 10 players, having twice faced James Blake, as well as once against each of Andy Roddick and Rafael Nadal. Kuznetsov came achingly close to his biggest career win last year at Wimbledon as a qualifier when he took a two-sets-to-none 6-2-6-1 lead over Fabio Fanini on court 18 before ultimately losing a heartbreaker 9-7 in the fifth. 
This year, with his ranking having fallen, Kuznetsov wasn't able to make the cutoff for qualifying at any of the last three Grand Slams. And so, he continues to play at the challenger level, as he has for most of his career. According to Tennis Abstract, 349 of Kuznetsov's 550 career matches have been at the challenger level, which made him something of an expert on the scene in Charlottesville. I'm here with Alex Kuznetsov, one of the stalwarts of the American challenger circuit, I would say. Is that fair, you think? Yeah, it's fair, I guess. You've been around a while. Been around a while, yeah, for sure. You've also been played a lot of ATP events and, and lower futures and stuff, too. So what would you say makes the challenger tour in particular, like, what it is? Uh, it's just a grind. It yeah. is. Um, it's not necessarily the worst um, level to play at, but you know you have guys that are very hungry to get to the tour level. You know everyone's played a challenger from I'm, I'm assuming Roger Federer to Novak Djokovic. They've all done it, and it's a process. It's a it's a journey to get there for sure. You feel like let's start from the bottom. You play futures too. So yeah. Describe what I've never been to a futures. What is the futures like? In terms of amenities, and, uh, and go everything like prize money, amenities, yeah, crowds, yeah. anything at the futures, and, de- and describe. I guess people might not know. Yeah. That's like the lowest level of sanctioned pro tennis. Yeah, it's much. the lowest level of uh, sanctioned pro tennis, and uh, I guess my first experience was uh, obviously I had to play qualifying of the ten thousand uh, dollar future. I think it was maybe in Vero Beach, and I remember I showed up with my dad, and there was one hundred twenty-eight guys that showed up for uh, <laughs> the qualifying. Which was a lot of guys just yeah. to compete for one, you know, ATP point. When also I think it's around one hundred eighteen dollars or so for uh, getting into the tournament. And uh, I just remember, I mean, all you have guys that are in camper vans. You have guys that are, you know, travel across the country in their cars, sleeping in their cars. It was a, uh, it was, it's an experience. And um, but like I said, everyone's gone through it, and uh, you know, everybody wants to. Uh, have that dream of playing on the ATP tour. How, how much? How were people there? Because I guess there's no real cutoff for a futures qualifying. Probably. Yeah, I think. So like, how big a range of like were they just like guys who like clearly had would never could never make it professionals yeah, there, out there? Yeah, or? I think my first two matches I won six six love six love. And yeah. I think I think how it works is you have to have some sort of national ranking, which I okay. I don't really know how you get that, but. Um, yeah, anyone can show up and, and sign up, and I think there's some sort of entry fee, and, and yeah, you go for it. And there's no ball kids, no no, no chair buyers, no lineup buyers. No ball kids. I think they have a roaming chair, like a, like a judge, that yeah. if you have an issue, you call him over, and maybe he'll yeah. watch your match for maybe a game or two. But other than that, yeah, it's some, uh, some sketchy line calls, and... Some guys that maybe get getting in your face, especially if they know you're a young kid and they've been around for a while. And, yeah. But uh, yeah, it's tough. Because I noticed that even here, the challengers, there's like people are a little more in your face, or there's a lot more like chatter going on. Yeah. I mean, like I said, you're you're competing. Yeah. You know, you want you want it so bad to get up to that level, and uh, you know, also it's later in the year, so everyone's yeah. probably a little burnt out. So there uh, could be a couple of uh, racket tosses and you know some f bombs or whatever. Yeah. So yeah, it's tough. In general, what do you, what would you say the sort of atmosphere like socially on Challenge Tour? Because you see a lot of these same guys, especially like the Americans. Yeah. Remember, and some of the people who play the circuit, like like Kotrowski, mm-hmm. I think plays all these events. Yeah. And Polanski, Peter Polanski, I know I saw here earlier, Canadian, and all these British guys have been around a bunch too. So how how is it? You guys get along? Or is yeah, it, I would is say it? everybody gets along for the most part. Yeah. You know, I think everyone has their kind of group of guys that they'll uh, hang out with and not hang out with. 
um, but everyone's, you know, everyone practices with everybody, and it's not, you know, it's not like there's any enemies out here, or, you know, maybe a couple guys that you may dislike or had some sort of issue with in a match in the in the past, but other than that, everyone's pretty friendly. What kind of stakes do you place on, like, a week like this? Like, we're in Charlottesville, it's a 50K, yeah. so it's not one of the bigger challenges, per se. Uh, still, if you win it, it could be a huge yeah. difference to your, your ranking, but, but at the same time... I don't know, you, got it. you can't go... I wouldn't think you can burn yourself out at this kind yeah. of tournament. Also. Well, obviously, for the American players, there's a lot more at stake as well. The USTA, they uh, they give a wild card to the Australian Open to right. the guy that um, accumulates the most points, two of the three. But, yeah, it's, you know, it's a challenger event, and, you know, if you, you know, win a round or two, it's not going to you know, make your year. But if you do win the tournament, that can kind of give you confidence going into 2016 and it also can maybe you know maybe haven't had a great year and kind of you know kind of rebound from that so what do you do in terms of like how you how you pick your schedule sort of that how, uh, how what goes into why are you in charlottesville let's put it that way yeah i mean like obviously being an american and you know that's at stake the wild card yeah. Australian yeah. Open wild card that's that plays into it but also um I like playing in the States. Uh, I'm not going to deny that. You know, traveling to Europe this late in the year for me is sometimes tough. But, you know, if I had to do it, I'd do it, of course. But, you know, these tournaments are convenient for me to travel to. You know, maybe a little less expensive as well. And, you know, you can be put up in housing with some people that you stayed with in the past. And, yeah. you know, that's also a big help. And it's uh, something that I chose to do this year. So I was, yeah, I was gonna ask about that. So the tournament provides you like people who serve as sort of hosts, I guess. So you yeah, it's free housing. It's free housing. Yeah, there's. I mean, that's nice. Uh, I don't know if they do it in different countries or not, but most of the U.S. challengers provide uh, housing for the players, which is great. You know, it could cost sometimes it could be some food, and yeah. <laughs> or maybe even give you a car for the week, just something to oh, kind of wow. help you out, which is great. Really nice of them to do that, um, and you kind of build relationships with these people, and you know, if you come back to the tournament, you know. The following year, they always welcome you back, which is really nice of them as well, and uh, it's very helpful. In terms of, people talk a lot about breaking even on this level of tour. Like, how much are you thinking about that when you're booking stuff, or do you have to you look at it week by week? Like, oh, a flight to I don't know Sacramento <laughs> costs this much money, so I can or can't uh, play Sacramento, and I know no, I'm going to get a free house there. I haven't gotten won't. to that point yet. No, if good. I'm still out here in five years and I'm still playing challenges, then. I hope you come over here and be like, all right, you're done. But <laughs> no, uh, you know, there's nothing like that. Obviously, sometimes, you know, we have to buy one-way tickets everywhere, so the yeah. price can get expensive, especially if you, uh, I mean, if you do well in the week and then you have to, you know, find a, you know, cross-the-country trip, you know, it's going to be expensive, but, you know, obviously you're going to do it because you're playing well and you want to keep, yeah. keep going. But I uh, haven't had any instances where I haven't been able to go to a tournament. Because of you, you must know people who've had, who've, come to points where there have been yeah. issues. I mean, that's like people talk about that for... Yeah, yeah, for sure. There's just times where you look at the flight and maybe you're a little burnt out and yeah. you see it, it's pretty expensive and is it really worth going to this tournament or not? And kind of make a decision not to do it. Yeah. Uh, you've been playing challengers for a while. I guess, is it tough staying at this level? You've been up to, obviously, ATP. Yeah. I know people talk about... I've seen people from the tour talk about in terms of prize money challengers saying yeah. we don't want people to sort of stay here forever we want people to sort of use it as a right. jumping off point yeah and not that you haven't you know jumped off but you've been in and out of challengers yeah quite for a bit. sure um for Obviously. i don't know when do you when how old were you when you played your first challenger 
Uh, I mean, I played probably one when I was 18. Yeah. But that, now you're 28? That was, yeah, that was yeah. probably just because I was getting, I wasn't yeah. really ready for that. They just gave me a wild card into right. it. But, but yeah, it, it's tough. I'm not going to deny that. You know, you have that dream of, of being up there on the tour doing it, you know, on a full-time basis. And I've had moments where I've, you know, played a lot of tour events. And, but at the same time, you need to earn it. And you can't just, I mean, I could just say I'm going to go and play tour events the rest of the, my career. But no. It's not always the best, you know, decision. You know, you, you also need to make some money. You need to, you know, keep your ranking up. Yeah. So you go and play challengers. So, but um, you know, still want to keep going and hopefully make a good ending to my career and yeah. uh, you know achieve some career highs. And I still have the passion to do that, so I'm gonna keep going for it. We saw that we were watching Smeechek earlier, somebody who's closer to top 100 now, he probably could have had a choice of going playing this challenger circuit or yeah. going over to Europe playing mm -hmm. 250s. He might have gotten into some direct, definitely yeah, at least sure. definitely yeah. at least qualities at yeah. the 500s there too. So for you, like how does that decision, when you can play qualities at an ATP or a challenger, yeah. how do you weigh the benefits, the risk reward of, of that and come to whatever decision you do? Um, it's just, it really, really uh, depends on his coach and him what decisions they want to make. Obviously, I think he's close to being um, main draw of Australia. Yeah, he's so like right a, around the top 100. Yeah, yeah, so that makes it, plays a big part of it. And, you know, his probably thought process is where am I, where's my best chance to make the points to get in there? And he decided it's going to be here. That's sort of playing it safe. In the same um, yeah, probably. If you want to call it that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, because if you go to play, you're playing higher ranked guys probably in the qualities. So yeah, if you lose well, first round, you can get. No, almost no points. Yeah. Also, yeah. You have to look at is if, even if I get into uh, you know a 250, there's no guarantee I'm gonna you know, get a good draw. I could play right. the number one seed, and right. I could be a top uh, ten right. player in the world. Yeah. So that's really a decision he made with his coach of staying here and playing the challengers. So we talked a little bit about like, what a future is just like amenities wise. How is this one a, a step up? Um, this is just a, a nicer facility we have here in Charlottesville. Uh, it's a, a big, big uh, club. It's yeah. got a lot of indoor tennis courts. It's got a nice gym, great squash uh, yeah. facility that we're sitting in right now. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, um, it's got everything you really need for a tennis player. You know, a gym, nice locker room, and uh, you know, I think they provide a massage therapist oh, that, nice. that, they, that you would have to pay for. It's not for free. Yeah. And uh, that's that's pretty much it. And some other challengers don't don't really provide uh, nice facilities like yeah. this. Or how, mu how much? How much of a range in terms of like quality of life is there on the, on the Challenger Tour? Um, like, what's describe if you can? You don't have to name it. You can if you want. Like the worst Challenger you've ever been to, and what that was. I played one for. in Thailand, which was pretty oh. rough. Okay. And that one, I stayed in a hotel that they didn't clean your room. They just you you get your room and give you two towels and. That was it for the week, you okay. know, and no one ever cleaned it or anything like that. And the food at the courts was, you know, not very good. So it was kind of have to be careful what you ate. So I pretty yeah. much ate like I bought some bread and peanut butter for the week, and that was my lunch for the week, and uh, it wasn't great. Yeah. <laughs> how, how careful do you have to be about like training and injury stuff? That's obviously you talk about finances, whatever. That's a big uncertainty. Yeah. And you've had injury problems in your career. Yeah, definitely. I'm sure a how, lot of tennis players go through it, and. Um, it's something that you have to kind of listen to your body and, you know, some guys, you know, maybe will push through an injury when they shouldn't have and it, you know, turns into something serious and um, you also have to keep up with your weight training when you're on the road and, you know, with your little, you know, shoulder exercises or core exercise, whatever it may be, just to keep you healthy and there's a trainer here, obviously, 
um, and you kind of have to just make it work sometimes you know a lot of the top guys that have their own physios yeah. and trainers and all that that look after them but here it's kind of all about you and how you um, take care of your body do you have to like some little be your own physio or sort of know more about like muscles and yeah rec- drills and stuff and you have to yeah do all the separate jobs for yourself yeah I mean do you have a coach right now I do yeah okay. um, he's down at Soderbrook he actually works with okay. John Isner as well okay um, so um, but you know I have also a great physio uh, back in Tampa good weight trainers and they send me a program on the road and if I ever ever have an issue I can call them okay and they can kind of tell me what's kind of going on over the phone and yeah. give me some exercise over the phone and it's really about you kind of staying on top of things not really saying oh you know I have a sore shoulder I'm just going to kind of not ice it or not even do anything for it it's making sure you go to the trainer see the trainer just doing whatever you can to make it feel better yeah. I think the last time I talked to you I'm going to be wrong with this but I think you just played Nadal in Melbourne Could have been, I want to yeah. say Could have been. Uh, so you've had some tastes of like the biggest tastes you played Nadal yeah. in the first round of a slam yep. uh, you probably had some other big matches too I'm guessing yeah. you played Andy Roddick or at least I played Andy Roddick yeah well, that was a long time ago but that was probably one of my first experiences yeah. of uh playing a big name on a center court night match. Yeah. So. How, but how does having uh, that experience of being on that kind of stage help you at this level? Does it? Yeah, I mean, obviously that that's an experience I'll have for the rest of my life, and, you know, you want more of those. That's something that it helps with. You know, you, you do get a little bit of a taste of that, and you kind of want to get back to that. You want to get back to those, you know, big matches, playing those big players, you know, seeing how, you know, how far you can push your game and how far you can kind of, take your abilities yeah. so you know seeing that match that's something that you know when you're maybe down and you know, had a couple of rough weeks maybe go back to that and you know it's on youtube you kind of watch that and kind of puts a smile on your face oh wow you know i was there and you know and you know it's something that pushes you along a little bit you skip ahead to like the points you want on yeah YouTube? definitely <laughs> yeah the ones that he's winning i'm just like oh, whatever yeah <laughs> you've uh so I've, I've heard from some guys in the challenge tour say they pay a lot of attention to how other guys are doing especially like when somebody from sort of their group makes it up uh-huh. a little bit you watch them and whether it's like dustin brown has played a lot of challengers yeah. some in the u.s not uh-huh. all but like beats in a doll yeah. or like uh other example i don't know other example like smechek almost beating Nadal, yeah, yeah. or not just Nadal, but other players right. out there too and there's big upsets do you follow that and does yeah. that inspire you when you see definitely somebody you've beaten beat a big guy because i'm sure it's happened plenty of times yeah i mean you see those guys playing like i said those big matches and you're kind of puts a little bit of fire in your stomach yeah. you know makes you work a little bit uh harder just seeing those guys having success and but yeah, it's great when you have a guy that you know has played challengers for a while, and then all of a sudden he's got that big breakthrough, and kind of yeah. makes you believe as well that you can do it. What do you think separates like the top ten ATP guys from the guys down here? What are the biggest What are the biggest differences? Uh, they are so consistent in everything that they do, whether it's how they prepare, how they play, you know, how they think. You know, they're just way more consistent than everybody else. So I would say. Their consistency with you know having the right guys around them, the coaching, you know their you know diet, their preparation—it's just top notch. And what does the what does the opposite of that look like? I mean, if you see a guy who here is doing something wrong, like what are some of the mistakes? I guess you see guys yeah, you in this just, range making. Yeah, you just see guys sometimes they'll you know whether it be they'll just you know they'll have a warm up prior to the match and they'll just show up, not even you know go to the gym and loosen up. They just stroll out to the warm-up court, yeah. take their shoes off, yeah. lace them up, and hit for 15 minutes, and then they're just sit around and wait for their match. Yeah. You know, that doesn't happen on with the top guys. You know, they're, they're warming up for their warm-up, right? And then they're warming up again for their match. So it's they have a they have great preparation, they have great you know, cool down, whatever. Everything is planned to the to the tee. 
even just being here a little bit, it seems I can tell how much waiting around you guys do. I yeah. mean, like there's six or seven matches on the schedule today. Yeah. And indoor tournament they're usually long, but here it seems like pretty long. Yeah, yeah. And so I found you just sitting around. You, yeah. weren't, you weren't playing today. No. Uh, but, so how do you kill time these tournaments? Do you um, just watch other guys, or do no, you no, just like, I, stare into space, or what do you, what do, you do? <laughs> no, I, uh, I had two practices today. Okay, that's pretty good. So yeah, I, w- I was sort of I was professional today. Good. Went to the gym for a little bit. I'm gonna go see the trainer, but yeah, it's a lot of uh, waiting around. Just a good friend of mine, Tim Smichek, was playing, so I yeah. figured I'd check his match out for a little bit. But uh, I try not to watch tennis. Actually, I don't like sitting around the courts, but. The Why days, not? Uh, just you know, just find yourself just sitting there, and maybe you're like, I don't know. I've noticed sometimes my posture will be bad, and all of a sudden my back starts hurting, and just stuff, little things like that. Okay. I've just realized over. It's not healthy, so they no, tell, they tell you that. You know? No, it's not. So if I'm gonna sit, it should just you know be back at the, you know, the house that I'm staying at and relaxing. That's how you relax, not sitting here at the courts watching tennis. Do you, do you have things you do to to kill time? Um, yeah, you know, whether it be reading or you know. Obviously, talking to your family and you know, my fiance back home, that, that's always nice. I try to, so even when I'm bored, I, <laughs> I may bother her a little bit more yeah, than yeah. I should. But um, but on the road, yeah, it's a tough it's tough sometimes killing time. What does she think of this, this life of yours? Uh, she's very supportive. She's yeah. very supportive. Uh, we've been together for five years, so she kind of, at first, it was kind of fun and, you know, oh, wow, you're a tennis player. And then after a while, she's like, wow, there's a lot of waiting around and doing nothing. I'm like, yeah, that's pretty much the life of a tennis player. We just sit around, wait for a match, wait for a practice. So I always tell her, if you ever want to come to a tournament, bring a friend that you can kind of go and do stuff right. with. No, because it, it gets, is it lonely out here? Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's definitely tough. Um, obviously, like I said, you try to hang out with some guys, but after a while, you just kind of, you're just sitting around, not even talking, just kind of hanging out but you're not really doing much so here actually there's a nice golf course if there's some time maybe i'll get out there and play a little golf just to kill some time but other yeah. than that it's just kind of not really doing, doing too much so if you if you were giving like, advice to somebody who was starting out being a pro tennis player what, yeah. what would it be you've been through because you were you were a so if you don't know you were like a big junior yeah you were, like a lot of yeah. success there yeah i i just tell them that i hope you're prepared for uh maybe a lot of uh how should I put it? Some disappointments. Yeah. <laughs> so be ready to lose when you first come out. Not you know, there's very rare that someone comes out and just tears it up. You know, be prepared. You know, have good work ethic. Yeah. You know, don't you know? Like I'll just tell them like, before you know, it, your career could be over. Just make sure you maximize. You know, every day. How do you how do you deal with with losing? Because that's obviously there's 32 people Everybody in the draw loses, here. Yeah. 31 of them are going to lose at some point this week, and all plus all the guys in qualities too. And yeah. It's how, do, how do you deal with that? I mean, you've lost. Not defensive. You've lost hundreds and hundreds of oh, matches yeah. in your career. So how do you Probably how do you do it? More than that. Yeah. <laughs> it's just something that's a part of our sport, and everyone goes yeah. through it. And other guys deal with it in different ways. Um, I have weeks where I deal with it better than others. Okay. <laughs> But there's not one way that I can tell you that I deal with a loss. It's, you know, one week maybe I'll just go and have a just a burger or something or yeah. maybe go have a couple beers. You know, just something to kind of take my mind off. Other times, you know, just me going back into the gym and, you know, you know working out right away or going back on the court and practicing right you know, It's just every week's different. There's not one way I deal with a loss. Do you have any big goals left for your career? Anything, anything you want to accomplish? Yeah, I mean... Obviously, I'm I'm getting up there in tennis age. I'm 28, yeah. which although you know you you have guys playing into their 30s yeah. nowadays, but I just want to maximize whatever I have left in me, and you know, kind of also enjoy these last couple of years. I think 
that's also something I would tell someone that's coming out, like, enjoy what you're doing. You're pretty lucky to call yourself a tennis player and travel around the world and, you know, see the cool places that we get to see. So, you know, just enjoy it a little bit more, you know, have fun, you know, and then uh, whenever I'm done, you know, I'll, I'll have this life to look back on and remember. You still feel lucky? I mean, you still get to play a sport even if you're not, you know, making the millions of yeah. bucks that the guys in the top ten are. You still, yeah. I have to think it's a pretty cool job even, even yeah. at this level. I think it's something that I had, to, I did, I struggled with for a while and, you know, you know, I always felt, oh man, you know, like I should be doing this and I could be doing that and look at this guy, he's having all the success and it really just made me feel even worse about myself. Yeah. So I kind of, you know, the last, you know, couple months just kind of gotten rid of that attitude and try to enjoy, enjoy a little bit more and kind of realize that I am lucky to, uh, to do what I do. Awesome. Good yeah. luck. Thanks, Alex. Thanks. Appreciate it, man. Next up in Charlottesville is a coach who has spent a lot of time at this level, Billy Heiser, who is currently the coach of two players, Tim Smichek and Dennis Kudla, as well as the injured Ryan Williams. Being at this challenger level, Billy's work is different from that of recent NCR get Yershi Fensel, also a coach who works with one tour-level player, Lucy Rudetska. On top of his steadier work with Smichek and Kudla, Billy spends time working with the revolving door of various players at this level of the game, juggling their various needs and their abilities to keep him employed. Here's Billy. Very happy to be joined by Billy Heiser, who's the coach of Tim Smichek, Dennis Kudla. Anybody else in, in the Heiser stable right now? Um, there's the two main guys, and Ryan Williams still coming back from back surgery, so um, he's still you know down in Tampa rehabbing, and uh, he should be hitting balls, probably first ball hit next week sometime. So we'll see how that progresses yeah. and, and kind of go from there. But just Tim and Dennis right now. How did how did you talk about I guess your life in tennis, your playing career, and then how you got started on the coaching side? Um, so I started. I had played junior tennis growing up and went to played college tennis at University of Illinois. It's a big tennis school for a lot of people who are on tour now. There's yeah. a lot of people. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. I, I mean, on my team, I lived with Kevin Anderson for two years. Um, Gigi Jones, who coached Kevin when um, Kevin first cracked top 30. Gigi was his coach, and Gigi was on the team as well. Yeah. Um, Rajiv Ram went there, who's a top 100 player. Amir Delic, who is top 100, went there. And coach Craig Yeah, Craig, Craig Tiley, t- yeah, tournament t- direct, or CEO of Tennis Australia now. Yeah, or tournament something director, crazy. I think yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, so obvi- yeah, big big tennis school. So that was, um, that was a good experience and great experience. And I um, started coaching right after college. I um, started with just a couple, couple kids in Chicago and... Um, they had some decent results, and so I started to get a few more kids and um, got enough to, you know, support myself, and, and, and so I started, you know, a tennis academy there, and it grew pretty pretty substantial, like a lot, maybe had 50, 60 kids at one point, um, just my dad and I, mm-hmm. um, and so that's kind of how I started coaching, and some of the juniors I, at the time I worked with, I got two kids that ended up being number one in the country, a couple won some national titles, um, and so kind of from there, um, I'd always, I mean, Tim and I have been best friends since we were like 10 years old, so we grew up playing together, and um, we kind of stayed in touch, and I, I felt that, you know, I maybe had something to offer and thought I could help him a bit, so we actually decided to do our first week, just a trial week in Winneka, which is where I'm from, Chicago, so it was home for me, and it is actually, it's, it's close to home for him, being from Milwaukee, so that was kind of just a trial week, and, and it went well, and so we agreed to continue on through 
the U.S. Open, and um, he had good results and ended up qualifying for the first time in New York. Um, won a won a first round in a slam for the first time, and so had some good results. And, and yeah, that's kind of how I got started. What made you think and this? This is not meaning to sound like insulting, or whatever. What made you think you'd be ready to be a, a pro coach, having not played at that level before? Yeah, um, it's a challenge. Yeah, yeah, just a challenge. I thought. Um, it's funny because I had kind of been asked when I first started coaching to coach someone on tour, and, and I said I didn't think I was ready. I I, I kind of shied away from the idea because I didn't, you know, kind of what you said. I didn't feel because I played at that level that I almost, you know, belonged coaching at that level. I never played that level, so I, I didn't think, you know, I just didn't think I was ready, and so. But then after having the academy and, and kind of getting more confident as a coach, I guess you could say, and having some kids have good results and, and start to do well, I thought yeah, I could you know, maybe try and see if I could help Tim. And, and, and just as a trial thing, it never started as, I don't think it was ever intended either to be a full-time situation because at the time he was maybe 220, 230 in the world or something. So he could, you know, at that ranking, he couldn't afford to, yeah. you know, pay me enough to where that's all I do. So it was just a trial type thing and it just ended up working and we we clicked and I had some good ideas for his game and 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 you know I just was able to get through to him and and it just ended up working so and then you came more full-time with him when I mean pretty much I still lived in Chicago so this was when NECA is is, uh in July right after Wimbledon so that's July of 2012 is is when I started with him that would be that's three and a half years ago right Yeah. yeah July 2012, um, and pretty much at the end of that year, our, a, a big goal for us was to figure out how we could be in the same same city so we could work together during the off-season and during training weeks and stuff like that and not have to always be you know, on the road. So um, that was when he made a more serious commi- financial commitment to working with me, um, and I left my academy where I, I you know, financially I was doing well and so I, I took a, a bit of a risk as well and, and moved my wife and I moved down to Tampa and um, yeah it just kind of year after year as he's, his ranking has progressed and it you know it obviously is a full-time thing yeah that's so. a big leap that a player has to take that a yeah at a coach I know yeah. we'll talk about the break-even point what that is for a player how much yeah. money you have to earn and Tim was probably just out to the top 100 then still probably yeah yeah, yeah when yeah. he made that move so that would be uh a risk, I guess, on some level. Yeah, I, yeah, for sure. I, I mean, I would. Let's see. So, but also, he's betting on himself. I mean, he he he, yeah, he, he thinks to, that he's you have to going to help himself. By always, doing this. always thought this, and it continues to come up, and it's come up with with even with Kudla recently. Uh, you know, he was obviously being with the USCA, de- you know, Dennis for so long, he had gotten stuff for free. So, for him to make an investment in his career and hire me, and and as soon as he hired me, I said, hey, we're going to hire a physio, and he works with. Scott Clark, Doc, who we call him Doc, who works with Tim as well, and, and I was like, we're, you know, you've got to invest in yourself, and so that was, you know, that was a leap for Dennis as well. But getting back to Tim, it, it certainly was a leap. But I think we had started gaining some some traction because he went, and at the end of that year, he got inside of the top hundred for the first time. Um, he had a good. He went out, and I think he, uh, I think he finaled and semied. Um, the two hundreds out in California. Mm-hmm. Um, then he semied Knoxville and won Champagne to end the year and got inside the top hundred for the first time. So we had 
got some traction together, and I think that was... That was the year he was the last American at the U.S. Open, right? In 2013? I want to say, That was yeah. 2013. I, oh, you're talking about 2012. 2012. Okay, yeah. Yeah, 2013, then the next year was was when he was last American and lost to Granollers in, yeah. in five. Um, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it, it was a situation where he, t- yeah, he, yeah, I don't know if you want to say bet on himself, but he, he, he invested in his career. Um, certainly bet on me being a, a, a new, I mean, I've only been coaching on the professional tour for six months, so certainly bet on me. But I think um, we, we were kind of on the same page with things and, and had a pretty good, I had a lot of belief in him, and I think he had a lot of belief in me that that was the right you know thing to do. What were the first things you, you sort of learned or grasped that were different about the pro game than the junior and college levels where you played? Um, well, it's different. I, th- I think it's different with coaching someone like Tim, who was very professional when I started working with him already, had very good habits already, was very, um, yeah, was already like a pro's pro. Like he was very professional. Um, and so that, that part of it, I was so used to coaching the juniors and the kids was like it was more teaching them how to how what it is like to, to try and be a professional tennis player and and, and proper routines and, and proper diet and, and 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 how to play and more teaching and Tim it was more almost like managing and, and figuring out what I can do to make his life easier what I can do to help, apart from just being a tennis coach what how can I manage his his professional tennis career and, and help him schedule tournaments help them you know no one to take days off no one to push them no one to say hey you need a couple days off and he listens no one to let's get out there twice a day and and so it's it's unique learning curve as to it went from less teaching and more managing i'd say how much of that do you still do for him and dennis in terms of like choosing tournaments or not even choosing tournaments like booking flights or being like a sort of manager role taking care Um, of stuff for them of the more they both have they both have agents okay yeah um but I don't. They both. I'm a big believer in. Them. They both enter their own tournaments. A lot of players have their agents enter their tournaments. Um, Tim and I. I mean, I. I it kind of. I don't. If I have free time and I'm sitting at my computer one afternoon, I, I'll just text you know them and say, Hey, what time do you guys want to get out to California? And if I, I'll book the flight. But it's not because I want to make it easier for them or anything. It's just because yeah. I'm. I, I'm just thinking about it so I just do it. It, it's, yeah. it and if they're thinking about it they do it it's um in terms of like schedule then yeah I have I we talk about the schedule and what tournaments they're going to play when we're going to arrive um organizing our, the physio travel with Dr. Clark um I try and you know I, I try and be you know be ahead of the schedule and, and make sure we're all staying close so like we're already looking towards Australian Open and, and booking it you know hotels or airbnb in the same area so we can all stay together um so i'll kind of take a, a role on, on that side of it but um not nothing you know i wouldn't say i'd do an over yeah. i think the normal amount what other coaches would do when did you when did you first start branching out to other players besides tim so the first one besides tim would have been tennis sangren okay um so saying and i started working together I mean, two years ago um, and actually here two years ago in Charlottesville and um, we actually had a pretty good run to end the year one year he uh, made quarters in Charlottesville made semis in Knoxville and won Champagne um, and then came and did an off season in Tampa and then he had uh, hip surgery at the start um, and so that kind of put a 
put him back in the rankings and, and financially and stuff, it, it was it was difficult, you know, to continue to work together. And then um, I worked periodically with Rajiv Ram as well, um, and I still work with him, you know, to this day. I still will do weeks with him here and there when it's when it's a convenient because he doesn't play the same schedule as Tim and Dennis. Right. He plays a little bit different schedule so when it's a convenience thing I'll, I'll help out Raj still um, and then Kudla well Ryan came on um, about this time last year um, but again Ryan had, had back surgery too so so that kind of stopped and then Kudla came on board um, right after the French Open this year so how do you, how do you balance it having more than one player because I mean, you were you're primarily with Tim at least for a long time, and now with yeah. Kudla yeah. having his big grass season and yeah. everything, and yeah. moving past Tim in the rankings. Yeah, uh, does that change your priorities at all? You're still Tim first, or when like they play different places? Like they think it's, I know yeah. Dennis went over yeah. to Europe. Yeah, so, so so how did the, that, how did you balance all of that? So when it was Tim and Sang, it was it was um, pretty clearly defined when Sang came on board. When I talked with Sang about it all, was was Tim was I hate the word priority, but what you know if. Tim was still in a tournament. I was going to stay with him instead of go to the next tournament with with Sang. Um, same thing when Williams came on board. Uh, when Dennis came on board, um, it was more of a 50-50 type thing because of the financial commitment Dennis was able to make because of where he was ranked. And But it was still, when I agreed to work with, with Dennis and we agreed mid-season like, to start right after the French, I had told him that I wasn't going to be able to be there if he had to play Wimbledon qualities, I told him I wasn't going to be able to make Wimbledon qualities because I already had to set a schedule with Tim that I was going to be with Tim in the tour event in Nottingham. Um, it just happened that Dennis did quite well right away and, and, and found on the one challenger and won the, the next one. He got a wild card in. Yeah. So I was able to, you know, I didn't have to miss Wimbledon qualities with Dennis. I was able to be there um, for Maine with Dennis. Um, and then since then, it's just been just communication. We just communicate which tournaments. I'm going to go to and, and which tournaments they might go to. Um, there's a situation that just recently I, I I chose to go with Tim out to California instead of going with Dennis to Europe. Um, I felt where Dennis was ranked, he was in Australia. Very important tournaments for him because he, he could have made a strong push for top 50 and very important, but I felt Tim needed that extra, you know, a little bit extra help to try and get inside the yeah. cut for Australia, so the decision was to go you know, and stay with Tim, um, which as long as, as long as I communicate that well, I think both guys understand that they're splitting a fee for a coach. And, and since they're essentially paying half of my salary, I think they understand that there has to be a little bit of flexibility. Um, and so we had another coach went with, with Dennis over to Europe and, um, his name's Christopher Williams, actually Ryan. Oh yeah, right. yeah, his cousin. Ryan's cousin. Yeah. Went with Dennis for two weeks to Europe, and Christopher. Um, I, I can't go to Knoxville next week, so Christopher's going to be in Knoxville with Tim. Um, so Christopher's kind of going to be, um, you know, coach Tim and Dennis going into next year as well. Um, so that's a, that'll be you know a big help because it, it'll allow me to cut back a little bit of the travel weeks for me, and make my life a little bit easier and not be on the road so much. Um, and, and uh, you can talk I'm not sure not at all about this you want but you talk about different financial commitments and mm-hmm. stuff how does that how does your sort of pay structure work is it just like a flat thing is it sure. a percentage of so I if they get bonuses if they win a tournament or how, do, how does all that break down yeah um, I won't talk numbers yeah, but sure. I, can, I can explain how I work it out because um, I think most coaches get after they 
most private coaches, obviously. Yeah. I th- and I don't know for sure, but I, I think I've heard that the way they do it is if they go on, you know, they go to four tournaments in a row at the end of the that trip or that leg of events, their player, you know, gives them a check. And I didn't want to move down to Tampa and not know exactly how much money I was going to make. Like, that kind of, you know, scared me a little bit. And yeah. I didn't know, what if I go to... 20 tournaments what if I go to 25 like I didn't know how many you know what was going to happen so the way I work my the, my agreements is I guarantee X amount of travel weeks and X amount of training weeks and let's just say for, for e- really easy numbers and let's just say it's 30 week a 30 week contract and let's say it's 20 travel weeks and 10 or 25 and 5 or whatever it yeah. is uh, most of my contracts are more than 30 but it's just 30 weeks and whatever the amount is I charge, you just take that amount and divide it by 12, 12 months, and they just make one payment a month. Okay. So I know exactly how much money I'm getting every month, whether I travel to one tournament that week or that month or I travel to four. It's the same, it's just one, it's the same exact payment every month. And then bonuses work. Um, my bonus structure for each of them is based on what I feel is a good tournament for them. Um, and I'll get a a percentage of the prize money on a good tournament for them. What's a good tournament? Um, well, Tim and Dennis have a, a, a slightly different bonus structure because at the time where Tim was ranked, his a good tournament for him would probably be a bit stronger than a good tournament for Dennis. When I started with Dennis, he was 150, so kind of reflects that. But um, I think a good tournament, like here I think maybe finals of a challenger or win a challenger is a good tournament. Um Went around at a slam, okay. two rounds at a tour event, kind of like that. Okay. Yeah. What 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 a good week would be. Right. That's uh, yeah, yeah, and it's fair. That's, yeah, it sounds like it. Speaking of challengers, right? This is sort of a challenger episode of the show. So, mm-hmm. we're at a challenger now. How important is this level of the tour for your guys? For because both of them right now, it's just stick with Tim and Dennis. Sure. Are both at a level where they can be playing either. Yep. They have choices. Yep. So why, for example, why did Tim? Let's say go play all these challengers this fall sure. instead of going to Asia and Europe and playing qualities. So right after the U.S. Open, I I for both guys I looked at what they're defending. Um, Dennis wasn't really defending much because he had mono this time and he had just come back and I think he might have only been defending like I don't know fifty sixty points or something which where he was ranked was one or two spots only it wasn't a big jump for him so. I felt he could have, instead of playing those, he played um, uh, Tiburon and Sacramento, which are $200,000 challengers, bigger challengers, and instead of playing those, he could have gone to Asia and play. Um, and the reason I had him play those challengers is because where he was ranked, he wouldn't have been in the main draw in Asia, so he could have ended the year playing um, six tour events, but six qualifying of tour events, so he'd be playing qualities every week. Yeah. Or I thought he could play $200,000 challengers, and then three, three big tour events, and so I made that decision to have him go and, and kind of play those two hundred thousand dollar challengers and be first seed and be a top dog and have guys come after him and it's a little bit of a unique situation where he hasn't been in before. Um, and I know going into next year that he's going to have to play a handful of challengers to try and get some points to to maintain his ranking or move up. And I didn't want those challengers next year to be the first time that he's experiencing kind of that feeling of guys really going after him. So I thought it would be good to, to get it out of the way and get him used to that environment now. Um, Tim was defending quite a bit. Uh, I think he was defending almost 
60 points or 170 points or something like that at, after the Open, mm-hmm. before the Cup for Australia. And with um, the ATP and the USDA adding challengers in the U.S., there, after the U.S. Open, there was 10 straight challengers. And so I looked at it as that's 10 weeks that he can go and try and pick up those points. And so I felt that was the best opportunity for him to get into Australia because that that's the goal is to end the year inside of inside of the cut for Australian Open. So that's why he played those challengers. I felt it gave him the best opportunity to to get those points. That's really it. And then going forward, I think it's important to play the challengers to try and get matches or if it's a bigger challenger, it's 100 points is a lot. So 100 points, whether you're having to win a challenger or you're finaling a 250, I think, you know, for Tim and Dennis, where they're ranked, they're going to be the first seeds at most challengers or yeah. a top seed at most challengers. So for them to go and win, uh, you know, 100 points in a challenger, they probably aren't going to have to beat anyone ranked ahead of them. Whereas for them to, say, go and, and earn the equivalent amount of points at a tour event, they'll have to probably beat three guys yeah. ranked ahead of them and two guys in the top 20 but it's for a lot the of, same amount of points. It's a lot of pressure in some way being a guy like yeah, yeah. Tim and Dennis have been who have been inside top 100, being top seeds at these challenges, playing guys sometimes outside top 300 yeah. or whatever, because if you lose one of those matches, it looks terrible. Yeah, for level. sure. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's just part of the sport, though. <laughs> yeah. Like, there's really there's no other way to look at it. I mean, it, it, it looks, yeah, it, it might look bad, but... At, most of the time, they're not playing bad matches. They're yeah. just playing against guys who have no pressure, and and you know that's the difference. At at you know two hundred to ten in the world, they all hit the ball pretty dang well. It's just the guys who are ten in the world are pretty good mentally, and the guys who are two hundred in the world aren't great mentally. Like yeah. that's what it comes down to. So when you have a guy who's two fifty playing against you know a guy who's a hundred, it, it they feel a lot less pressure. So they're their tennis is pretty pretty high. So, what, what what have you noticed most when you've had moments where your guys have played against some of the top guys, whether it's like Kula playing in the second week of Wimbledon this mm-hmm. year against Chilich or uh, Tim playing against uh, you know Nadal? Obviously, it was the famous match this year. Yeah. What what is that? What do you see when you see those matches, especially with your guys not spending that much time on the main tour yeah. relative to those guys? Yeah, when they, when they do get those looks and how they've handled them. Yeah, and how, I, I you, how mean, you see the matchup pretty, happening. Pretty proud and happy of both guys with how well yeah. they competed. Um, I think a lot of guys kind of shy away in those situations, and I thought both Tim and Dennis did a really good job of you know throwing everything they have out there and not being afraid to give it everything they have and walk off the court losing. I think that's a big part of it. You you can, I mean, it's funny, before Tim was going out to play, to play Rafa, it was, I mean, we were laughing about it, and we're like, I mean, yeah, you could walk off the court and just, you know, get blown away and, and you know, let's hope you don't get embarrassed. I mean, it was, we were joking, but, yeah. like, that's, it's on the back of your mind. Yeah, sure. Rafa is, is certainly one guy, one of the top guys that is not going to take a point off and is going to try every single point really, really hard, and, and if he can beat you oh oh no, he's going to beat you oh oh no. Whereas, you know, maybe a guy like Fed, who who is a little bit, I don't want to say casual, but he's pretty confident that he could go out and win a match 3-3-3 three, three, and three and conserve some energy, and he's going to do that. Where I feel like Nadal, if he can win 0-0-0, oh, oh, no, he's going to run through a brick wall to beat you 0-0-0. Oh, oh, no. That's yeah. just who he is. Yeah. Um, and that's probably what impresses me most about that match that Tim played in Australia is Rafa didn't have his best stuff. He was you know, fighting himself quite a bit, and I think, I think Tim played a really intelligent match and made Rafa really uncomfortable. And, um, you know, kind of 
partner that with the fact that Rafa might not have been feeling great physically. Um, the guy mentally is a joke. He's the best in the world mentally, and so I think that's why you see him on his knees at the end of the match. I mean, he's one of the best players of all time, beating a guy who just came through qualifying, who's playing arguably one of the best matches he's played. Rafa's playing a, a, a average match for him, and he wins the match, and he's on his knees, and his hands are on his head, and he is, you know, it's just who he is. Like, he is not afraid to put it all out there and, and win a match. Like, it means that much to him. And I find that's the biggest difference with those guys to challenger-level guys is they are afraid to put that emotion into a match. And, and they'll lose a match, walk off the court, and kind of have a smirk on their face like, yeah, right, that guy just beat me. And, and Rafa is going to run through a wall before that happens. Like, he is going to give everything he has physically and mentally to try and win a match, regardless of how well he's playing. And I think that's something that, you know, Tim and I have talked a lot about, um, you know, trying to learn from that match. Uh, I was incredibly impressed by that. And then Dennis with Chilich, same thing, how how tough Chilich fights mentally. You know, he didn't, he very rarely has, you know, he's not a, he's a pretty um, high-risk player, so he either has his stuff that day or he doesn't, but he competes incredibly hard. And, and I feel those guys at that level, they have a really good job of, of uh, of making a, a really, you know, defining whether they're hitting the ball well versus competing well. And I feel the challenger players, if they are hitting the ball well, they're going to compete well. If they're not hitting the ball well, they're not going to compete well. Yeah. Whereas those top guys go on the court and they just compete. And some days they hit the ball well, and that's great. Some days they don't, but they're still competing hard. And I think that's something... Tim and Dennis, you know, we continue to try and strive to. Do you understand? I mean, I've seen that certainly this week. Seen a lot of guys lose, obviously, and yeah. seeing how they take and they seem to be they shake it off relatively quickly. But at some point, do you think that can be? It's a defense mechanism, I guess, yeah. on some level. Yeah, yeah. But do you think at Absolutely. some level you understand why people think it's necessary for survival at this level? Because I feel like if you were out here living and dying with every match, you might not last long. Does that make sense? Or yeah, but. Because I mean, because you lose here and you're losing, you know, it's not different than losing at a Grand Slam, like than uh, on to Nadal. It's you're losing, but it's, but it's yeah. not because because this should be this challenger should be equally as big to Tim Smicek as the Australian Open is to Rafael Nadal, right? I guess yeah. Like why not? Like this this is this is an opportunity for Tim to win a professional tennis tournament. That's an opportunity for Nadal to win. A professional tennis tournament like yeah one is greater than the other but honestly one player is yeah. greater than the other so it's all relative and I think that's important like I, th I thought when Tim and I spoke about it after his match against Evans I don't know if you got yeah. to see any of it I thought Tim did a great job of sending a message to everyone watching that he's here competing hard like he was emotional he was fiery he was pumping himself up and, and to me that showed that like he is, you know, he's present. He's here. He's engaged. He's he's fighting hard. Like he's showing, you know, a lot of passion out there. And I think that sends a message to a lot of players that wow, he, you know, <laughs> Tim's here competing hard. And like he's here. He's going to be tough to beat this week. And I feel sometimes guys can be quite passive out there. Um, saw it a little bit with Duckworth today. I felt he was really passive out there. And I think that doesn't send a very strong message to the other players. Where Rafa going out and and jumping fist pumps first round of Australian Open sends a message that that guy's not going anywhere. Yeah. I think that's important. Um, 
and I get a challenge, you know, it's hard to get up for a challenger compared to Australian Open because there's only four Grand Slams. There's, I don't know how many challengers. I get that analogy, but I think at the end of the day, this is what you choose to do for a living. So you either do it right or you don't. I, I think you just don't do it then. Like if you can't commit yourself to play every match hard, then tennis probably isn't the sport for you. Cool. I'll leave it at that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's what I think. I mean, <laughs> I just don't like, you can make so many excuses for guys, but at the end of the day, like, you have 24 hours in a day. How long is a tennis match? Two hours yeah. average? Hour and a half? Hour average? Like, all you have to do is do your job for one hour out of 24 hours, and you can go do whatever you want the rest of the day. So I think you have the ability and the willpower to do it well. Yeah. Ask a little bit about the rest of the hours of the day, because you, <laughs> you guys are here. You're here. I just found you here because you don't have anything else to do right now. Yeah. Uh, and it seems like at this tournament particular more than I see it like the ATP events or slams people seem to be just hanging around watching the tennis because they yeah, don't know what else to do I think that's a bit of a byproduct of it sounds bad but about the, this level yeah players get kind of sucked into not having anything else to do and I, and I feel at least with guys I work with I, I'm pretty strong at showing up to the office doing your work and then leaving um, I don't like you know I don't like them hanging around or anything like that unless there's a specific reason we're gonna hang around. As for myself, I I just I'm a bit of a tennis nerd and I like watching and and one of the guys who trains at Saddlebrook was playing and and uh, so I thought I could stick around and and try and give him a little bit of support and try and help him win a match and um, and then there's a you know a couple other of the younger Americans playing later that I haven't got to see a whole lot of so. I'm gonna, you know, I just want to watch them. I haven't seen them play much, so I'm intrigued by their level and how they play. Um, but that this, like, this is my job. I'm still working. I'm still watching. I'm still learning. I'm still scouting. So that's why I'm hanging around. So when you like send Tim home from here, what does he? What does he's, he do? He's with our physio with okay. with Doc um, back at the house, getting treatment, getting worked on. They'll probably do an hour and a half or two hours of stuff back at the house. Do you guys have your own place you're renting here? Or? No, we're staying with the family. Yeah. yeah. How does that, that's one thing that's about, because I heard that's pretty much everyone's doing here. Yeah, so most tournaments um, that have a strong community support and a lot of volunteers, they'll they have someone who's going to be like a housing chair and, and be in charge of finding the players' housing, and, and certain families will volunteer, and, and, um, and multiple families will volunteer and host multiple players, and, and so we're staying with... Glenn and Patty Rowe, and, and we stayed with them previously. We stayed with them last year and the year before, and, and um, they come to other tournaments and, and watch, and we stay in touch, and, and so it just kind of works like that. It's uh, We stay with the same family out in California every year, um, and so you stay with the set, you, you develop relationships and, and, and stay in touch, and they'll come in. Most families that house tennis players are tennis players themselves and so they make trips to u.s open or indian wells or the bigger tournaments as fans and they're able to see the guys compete there so that's just kind of how it all it's usually you get set up with one family and if you know if they're a nice family it's a nice house and it's a good situation then then you stay in touch and try and stay there you know the next year it seems like that has to be a big help for a lot of guys same i was we're watching like uh against Kuznetsov earlier, who won, is playing against Garaganga. Yeah. And he uh, had people there supporting him. I was guessing it was his host family, probably. Yeah, so... And so, so yeah, that has to make, help make the road a lot less lonely for a guy from Zimbabwe who's over yeah, in Virginia sure. playing. Well, definitely for other players, Takani is a bit of a unique example because he actually was based out of here for, okay. a couple, for about a, I think a year, a year and a half. There was okay. a sports agency called Mamba 
which represented uh, Samdev Devarman out of college, and Samdev played at UVA here, and, and Takanya was also represented by them. So Takanya was based out of here for a bit, so that's why he had the crowd okay. support tonight. But you definitely see, like Liam Brody was playing an American Escobedo earlier, and uh, Brody was getting some good support, and that was, I don't know for sure, but you generally just assume that's yeah. his housing. Cool. Yeah. Uh, anything else people should know about life on this tour? For on the challenge tour, yeah, just and any any um, surprise people or encourage them or discourage or whatever about, about yeah, trying to make it at this level because it's because yeah, people do see this as like a it's I think people refer to this as a little bit of an in between level you know you're yeah. trying to get out of this in some level it's on some way I agree and I think that's a, a bit of a shame because the players that are playing at this level are really good tennis players yeah if they if you're ranked 100 in baseball. You're making dollars, and you're on. You're in a starting lineup on a professional baseball team. Same with across all sports. And I think just tennis is a bit unique because of the financial restrictions it has. That you're 100 in the world, and and you're considered, you know, a second tier pro player. So, I think it's important. You know, people, the general public, should come out and check out challengers because it, the tennis is good. Like, I felt Tim's match against Evans yesterday. I thought that level was really good. Um, I mean, that's a, in my opinion, that's a that could easily be a semi-final of a tour event right there. And, and and Evans has been in finals of tour events. Tim's been there. I think that was a good level match. It's a shame it was first round of a challenger, but that's sometimes how tough challengers can be. Um, and I think it, it's it's a shame that it's thought as a second tier. But, it, I mean, it definitely is. You're 100% right. And I think it's, it's too bad because the level and the players playing at these tournaments are good. They're very good. Um, and you see it more times than not where a guy – Ranked like this, we'll will play the challengers and, and end up twenty. In the, I, I mean, everyone starts at this level, so it's just a matter of time before some guys get out of this level or stay in this level. But it'd be nice if guys could stay at this level and earn good money because they certainly deserve to because they're certainly good enough for it. Um, I think it would be. I had I've had this idea about instead of calling you know the bigger challengers like a hundred thousand dollar challenger instead of calling it a challenger if they called it an ATP one hundred, I think it would make a world of difference in terms of sponsorship dollars and marketability and and, and giving those players the respect that, that they might deserve that they don't get because it's considered a challenger. Um, but, yeah, I, I, until there's more money in tennis, that's not going to happen. All right. Cool. Well, thanks very much, Billy. Yeah. To close out this week's Challenger special, we bring you one of the best talkers in the sport of tennis who is probably overdue a spot on NCR, Ryan Harrison. Ryan's only 23, but if you're a tennis fan, especially an American one, you've likely known about Ryan and had an opinion or two about him for some time now. Way back in 2008, Ryan won a match at the ATP tournament in Houston when he was only 15, becoming the third youngest player to do so since 1990. The players who were even younger when they won ATP matches were both future stars, Rafael Nadal and Richard Gasquet and so considerable hype for Ryan seemed justified. Dubbed the next big thing and the long-awaited successor to Andy Roddick, Ryan steadily climbed into the top 50, peaking at number 43, and even earned a spot on the 2012 American Olympic team as a teenager. But from there, it's been largely downhill for Ryan. His unabashed confidence and temper were polarizing. Mr. Cranky Pants, Ryan Harrison. <laughs> I agree with Martina. I don't know why he hasn't been at least warned because he's just acting like a brat out there. You don't think so? You can defend what he's doing? And his draws were almost comically unlucky. 
though he's never made it past the second round of a Grand Slam in singles, at those Grand Slams, he's had to face top 10 players like Robin Soderling, David Ferrer, Andy Murray, Rafael Nadal, and each of Grigor Dimitrov and Novak Djokovic twice. Harrison first slipped back out of the top 100 in 2013 and nearly dropped out of the top 200 late last year. But this year has been an uptick for Ryan, with some notable successes at the challenger level, winning in Happy Valley, Australia before the Australian Open, and reaching finals at Cary and Columbus since the U.S. Open. Perhaps more encouragingly, Ryan finally beat a top 10 player on his 23rd try at the ATP 500 event in Acapulco, notching a win over Grigor Dimitrov en route to the semifinals there, his best result ever at the tour level. With that cachet of points under his belt for at least a few more months, Ryan is sitting at 110 in the ATP rankings, right on the bubble for a direct entry into the Australian Open main draw. And as it's clear from our conversation, Ryan's sights remain set much higher than just the Challenger Tour. Ryan, thanks for being here, first of all. Thanks a lot for having me. Appreciate it. <laughs> uh, so you've, you've been playing on the Challengers more lately. What, is it, what, do you, what have you learned about this level of, of the game and, I guess, what it, uh, how it differs, I guess, from some of the ATP events you played before and what it takes to do well here? Yeah, well, you definitely want to get out of the Challengers as quickly as possible. You know, that's the goal. You don't want to be stuck playing Challengers for an extended period of time. Um, you know, there's some guys, like especially the seated guys at Challengers, are usually a couple of good tournaments, you know, a title and a final, something like that, away from getting inside the top 100 because you see a lot of guys that are inside of... Like you yourself, know, you're yeah, right outside 103, now. 110, yeah. 100, you know, you, you know, a couple of good tournaments and you're, you're back in, in, the, in the big time, which is where you want to be. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, obviously everything is just different. I mean, from the hotels to the transportation to just the, the fans, everything. I mean, for as good as a tournament can be run at a challenger level, it's just difficult whenever you don't have uh, household names that are playing the tournaments. So, um, yeah, I mean, you just you want to try to get out of them as soon as you possibly can and, uh, and do everything you can to, to improve. Especially, I guess, maybe with having the experience you have at all the biggest stages. Yeah. You've gotten a taste of... You know, center court, ash, flavor, all that stuff. Is it tough getting up for playing on court nine in, in Charlottesville? You know, the toughest thing is, is that you have to understand that, like, any, any of these guys who are 200, 300 in the world, first of all, they're going to play their best tennis against you because yeah. they know that you've played at the highest level. So everyone's up to play you, even the guys who have reputations for, you know, tapping out or not being mentally strong or whatever. Because um, you're, you're, you know, you're a, a week-changing or a, even a momentum-changing win for them whenever you're seated at these tournaments. So they're all going to be up and trying to play you no different than if I was playing a guy who's top 20. You know, I'm not going to ever tap, or not that I would ever tap, period, but you, you don't have that sort of uh, go-away that some sometimes you would see it against another guy. So, you know, that's a tough part of it, but I think that the biggest thing is is that, you know, you start a match knowing that you're going to get a guy's best, but, uh, you know, if you are able to, to play the way you want to play, keep your head together, then you start to put that mind and that thought in their mind that says, okay, well, you know, he's been up there for a reason, and then it, that makes their own self-doubt start to creep in. So that's kind of the precedent that you want to set as you play tournaments is, like, you know, show them why you've been there yeah. and make them feel like they, they, can't, they can't find a way to beat you. So you're very conscious, I guess, then, of your reputation, your track record when you come here against mm-hmm. a lot of guys who – have never been top 100. Right, right. I mean, we, well, you we talk about it a lot, you know. I mean, there's there's something, as you mature, you start to understand it goes from, you know, maybe 
two, three years ago, I would come back and play the Challenger, and uh, I'd be like, oh, my God, this guy's playing the best tennis of his life, you know, that sort of stuff, instead of just understanding, like, okay, yeah, like, he's going to play well because he's trying to beat you. There's a target on you. And so you obviously have to be prepared for it, but then you weather the storm, and then you can set that precedent in each other's, in, in their minds. And it actually becomes contagious. The more you start beating people, the more it becomes easier to roll people because they start saying, okay, the, like the level you're bringing, they know that it's not challenger level because I can play higher than that. So, you know, that's the goal. I mean, I'll, like I, I play again tonight, and I'm expecting to get the guy's best. I got tennis's best tennis, especially for the first set a couple of nights ago. You know, he, we were at five all, and I hadn't had a break point, and he'd had probably six, you know, and I was yeah. having to dig and fight, and I wasn't playing that bad. I was able to okay. uh, weather that and then basically go um, – go from there and, and get the break and kind of run with it. But like I said, you know, you, you start to make them feel like they can't, they can't stay with you for the whole period of time, and, and hopefully that's, uh, that's the stuff you can bring every day. Is it, how do you set your expectations for this tournament? Because with where you are in the rankings, mm-hmm. where you've been, I'm guessing you would think with no disrespect to a guy like tennis, like any loss you take to an unseated player here, you right. might consider a bad loss. Yeah, I mean, you want to win the tournament. You know, yeah. I, mean, I, I look at the draw, and, and I know that if I play well, I'm capable of winning the tournament. I mean... Um, I felt like uh, I had a couple good opportunities to win the, a couple of titles that I've made finals in a few weeks ago. Um, but at the same time, there's always going to be that guy at a challenger um, who's 150 in the world who's playing really well at the time. Out of 30, you know, 31 other guys, you're yeah. going you're to get somebody's best, and you're going to win some, some fractional matches, and sometimes you're going to lose some fractional matches. But uh, the, the thing is, is if you, if you give yourself a chance every week then you know it only takes you know two maybe three of these events in in a six to eight week span that you do well in to to be a good run you know it's not like you have to title eight weeks in a row i could second round here first round knoxville and then win champagne and finish the year happy you know that would be you know i would be 90 you know something like that 85 and and then going in good so you just you try not to put a too much amount of pressure on one in particular match but at the same time, knowing that every week is a good opportunity. You're, like, right on the bubble for right. Australia right, right now. How much are you, like, looking at those numbers, and how much is that in your head Not right at all. Now? Not no. at all. I mean, I've thought about it zero because okay. I know I know where I'm ranked just because I see it on the seedings and I know where I come out. Obviously, I know that everyone's trying to fight for that 100 spot. But um, the way I look at it is is everybody in that 15 to 20 ranking area right there from about 95 to 115 – has that goal in mind, and if I can handle it better, then I'll give myself a chance. And so I know that, you know, I'm, I'm going to play as hard as I can tonight, and I'm, I'm not going to freak out or lose my mind if it doesn't start great or if I go down a break because that's when you can get in trouble. You know, you go down a break in the first set, and you start freaking out, thinking you're not going to make it, and then you're not prepared to even fight back out of it. Yeah. What do you um, – when you made your schedule, mm-hmm. how do you pick between playing challengers and playing – uh, ATPs, like you could have gone over to, right. you would have made qualities at the very least. Yeah, we talked European about stuff. it. Um, so why challengers? Just because I was rolling at the time. Whenever we had to make the decision, I'd, I'd made back-to-back finals, and and I felt like I was, uh, I felt like it was easier for me to get geared up to play in the states. I felt like I only needed to, you know, I felt like I was, in, I was consistently beating guys pretty comfortably. You know, two and three, three and two, and I was just 
trying to keep it rolling. I, I honestly just ran out of gas in California at the last two weeks I played. I just ran out of gas. I mean, I, I didn't take any break to go home after the Open. I went straight and started training again, and then I went straight into six weeks of tournaments, and by the last two, I was just, just done mentally. So um, that was the decision. Next, next year, I'm going to play an abundance of tour events to start the year because I have, um, you know, until mid-April, I guess, whenever at whenever Puco, I have to defend that. I'm, I'm going to have, you know, some house money to play with for a little while because I have... I don't know, three, four months of the yeah. first year to, to keep those on my ranking points. And then it's funny because you always think about defending, but then it seems like every time it comes back around, you add on more at the time because you are a better player than you were a year ago if you're working hard. And, um, you know, that sort of that time of year plays great into the way I play. You know, it's slow, bouncy, like lively, bouncing, high-bouncing high yeah. hard courts, which are, you know, my wheelhouse so I play well there every year um, you know I've made round of 16 of Indian Wells twice I've made second round of Miami a few times I uh, you know I just like those tournaments I just play well there so um, I'll just be ready to, to go with I, I just really hope that by that time of year my ranking will be at a point where I don't have to play qualities because I'm, I'm not going to be applying for any more wild cards um, I just okay. I just don't want to apply for any more because I feel like at this point it's time for me to go and uh and just win when I have to. What I, made yeah. you make that choice? I know, I know I've seen people yeah. say, even when, even like at the U.S. Open, where I think obviously your ranking was right there where you should have got hurt. Yeah. I heard some people say, oh, Ryan's getting another wild card. He's right. gotten too many. Well, so is that is something you've, you're aware of that sort of knock on you? It doesn't, it doesn't have any effect on me, the lashback from what I get from other people. It's more of my own perception of it. Yeah. You know? and, and my own perception <laughs> of it is, is that I want to, I want to earn you know the the way back through because it's not, it's going to help me be a better player once I get there. I mean, like Acapulco, you were a qualifier. Yeah, I was a qualifier. So, you know, yeah. and, and so then you semis there. So then and then I get a wild card into Indian Wells, and it's like I mean I just made semis of a five hundred, and I was I split sets in the semis. You know, it wasn't like I was not playing good tennis. Um, so you know, it's it's amazing to me. I mean, I've said this a hundred times, but I mean, if I'd gone to college, I would be in my 14th month or 15th month yeah. after college, you know, I would be still being talked about as like new upcoming, yeah. you know, I mean it, that it's just, it's absurd, you know it's absolutely absurd to think people don't realize I still have 13, 15 years yeah. of my career left and, and it's just and anyone who knows me knows that I worked my butt off, so you know how are you going to not say I'm going to get better yeah. so whether it takes me 6 months or a year or whatever, you know I'm going to hit a streak yeah. People are going to go, oh, well, that was what we always thought he could do, and he's finally doing it, and I'm going to go, well, <laughs> there's about six people that, that kind of supported me through the whole thing, and those are the people I'm really going to appreciate it with. Yeah. And um, I think that, like you said, I mean, I, I've, I don't know if you've seen my Twitter account, but I haven't tweeted in months because okay. I've just completely deleted it, stayed off of it. I don't want to give any people an outlook to feel like they can get involved in, in what I'm doing because – those are the people who will get I, I love the support from people you you want to hear the support but you you also you don't want it to be in a in a way where the same people who are the first ones to bash you are the same ones that are going to support you right and so I think that uh, 
from a social media standpoint, it, it's just tough because you, you can't open yourself up to that sort of allowance of feeling good when people support you because then when you feel bad, people yeah. crush you and you feel that too. So you, you try to block it all out if you can. Yeah. Yeah. You, when you talk about how young you still are, mm-hmm. do you feel like the amount of success you had, you were like one of the youngest guys ever to win a tour match, right, main draw right. in Houston. You made the Olympic team when you were a teenager. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that looking back, was it too much too soon, quote unquote, or were you not ready for being top 50 and on that sort of stage that young? Or, or, I, I, or It's not that I wasn't ready, but it was yeah. exactly what I talked about. I opened myself up to all the positivity and let it kind of like be exciting and everything. And when the people were building me up and talking about how you know, how great I was playing and yeah. my prospects and all this sort of stuff, you know. That go I, to your head? Yeah, I mean, not not from a cockiness standpoint, but you just like it. You know, you yeah. it, it feels good whenever people support you. But then the next time you hit a, a little bit of a bump, people crush you, and I let that in also. And that like, that's what I talked about before, you know. Yeah. And that, I mean, I, I flat out just let the uh, – you know, the backlash or the, you know, the, the bad press or whatever you want to call it. I just let it get to me, put more pressure on myself. Not, not in a, like a depression way. I I was never the person who got like so upset or whatever, but I had a a more like a, I'm going to go prove otherwise. And then when I couldn't right away, I put even more pressure on myself to try to, to try to fire up even more. And it became a negative circle. And I spent six, eight months of my career losing my mind all the time because I just, I mean, all I wanted was to show everybody that I could play, you know, that I could still, that I could still do whatever people were saying I couldn't do. And, um, you know, it, it just, it was a lot of stuff. I mean, I was playing great tennis. I had some awful draws. I had some yeah. really, really tough, you know, tough opportunities that I let slip away. And, um, and then it just kind of took me, I don't know, I mean, how long has it been now? A year and a half, two years that I've been outside of 100 and trying to get back something in? Like that, yeah, yeah so around there to, to get back in. But, you know, I also spent, um, I don't know, what was it? I don't know if I finished inside or, or like within one or two spots of 100. 2012, I think maybe even 2011, I finished inside of 100. 2012, I finished inside of 100. 2013, I was right on the bubble. 2014, I dropped out. And right now, I'm right on the bubble. So let's look at it realistically. Yeah. Pretty much been inside of 100 yeah. for four of the last five years, and I'm being crushed like I can't play tennis. You know, I mean, that's, the, you know. I think part of what backlash, whatever you got, yeah. and I'm not saying this is obviously your fault, you were not shy about your goals when right, you were coming right. up. And you talked, and you, and you, a lot of people are a lot more guarded about it than you were. Right, you, you, made, you made no bones about saying, I want to be number one, I want, I want to win Yeah, slams. absolutely. And stuff, absolutely. which I obviously respect. I, much, I, I want to hear people right. care Abs- and have Absolutely, but then you set that expectation yeah. for people who are trying to, who, who want to see, you know, an American do, you, do that. Is, do, you, do you regret saying that? No, sort of things no, now? no, no. I mean, that's, I mean, that's still my goal. I mean, yeah. I still, like, I mean, in no way, shape, or form has that changed, you know. Um, the talent that I have that people bought into of thinking that I could do that, it doesn't go away. You know, I mean, I'm not less talented than I was, you know, now do I have to refine some things that things get a little bit off? Yeah. My forehand went a little technically off and my backhand, I started chipping a little too much, playing a little too defensive, wasn't getting the net as much. So I have to kind of like re uh, evaluate how I'm going to go about, you know, my progression. But I mean, for, I mean, how great of a player is Grigor Dimitrov, you know? Guy is phenomenally talented, such a good player, 
he got murdered this year for dropping from 11 or 10 or whatever yeah. it was to 27, you know what I mean? But then when he turns around and plays great again, and whether it's next year or the year after, you know, it, it, it just happens, you yeah. know, that's, that's the way it goes. I mean, it's kind of like a what-have-you-done-for-me-lately sport. And like I said, um, part of the decisions from, you know, first of all, like taking Twitter and the Facebook stuff away from myself to where I, you know, I would love to be able to connect with, with fans and stuff, but, you know, whenever it's from a, a standpoint that you're going to open yourself up to all sorts of, you know. If it's a negative, you don't need it. You know, yeah. you just you just try to do everything you can. And, and like I said, I mean, I'm, I'm not, you've seen stories of people, um, you know, who get like upset by it and re- respond to you know and I hear you know whoever it is Dustin Brown or any of the guys who've kind of like responded to that I've never cared from that point of view I've always just cared from a like I, I care so much about what I'm doing that I want to I want to eliminate or or show you know whoever that I can that I can do what people said I can't do um you don't need extra pressure. I mean, I already put a ton of pressure on myself, so you know, there's no, there's no need for excess toughness. Yeah. So. I, on uh, the challenge front, just to sort of a yeah. challenger focused thing, when you when your ranking started slipping and you first went back down, right? The challengers, I guess, that was probably 2013. I'm yeah, guessing. 2013. Uh, was that at all like humbling for you, like having to to scale back or thing? Uh, what was what was that moment like for you when you? When I first got back, back down, when you first went back down. Well, when down. I first went back down, I was thinking I was going back down for one or two tournaments. You yeah. know? <laughs> like that's the that's the goal. You know, you're like, all right, I'm going to go down. I'm going to try to pick up a couple titles. I'll be back at 70, and then boom, next thing, you know, yeah. and then you lose a couple titles. You look at how many points the winner gets. Yeah, exactly. It, yeah. You know, so and and it, it's funny. It doesn't change. You know, I'm looking at them. I'm like, all right, where's 80 points put me? You know? yeah. <laughs> all right, well, you know, so you're you're looking at it from like a uh, you know, this is where I can be. If I if I do well in these couple of events, and that'd be great, you know, I can start if I can start the year and play the first three months inside of 80, 90, and give myself just some breathing room. I, I honestly feel like with my um, maturity now and with a little bit better grasp on how to deal with success, I I can run even higher than than I did before with uh, you know with a, with the opportunity, the same opportunity. Is it easy to stay optimistic? Because, I mean, obviously, being around here, you see there are guys who don't yeah. make it out of yeah. this level. Um, it is very much dependent on who you have around you. You know, you be- always become kind of a product of your environment. It's, uh, it's great to be around people who are hungry. Um, I love being around the young, young guys right now um, because they're all pretty hungry, you know, yeah. and, and I like it. And I also like being able to help them I don't know. I mean, I'm not near old enough to like mentor anybody because I'm still pretty young myself. But um, anytime there's anyone you know that that I see who I feel like is really really hardworking, I, I want them to do well. You know, I, I thought it was awesome to see Taylor Fritz breaking through. Francis was playing great. Um, you know, you just hit it, with Francis. Right? Yeah, just hit with Francis. Yeah. You know, and and it's been cool to kind of um, you know just get to know those guys a little bit personally. So you you just want to. You just want to get out of here as soon as you can, I mean, and and you can you try to surround yourself with people who have that same goal. Are, are you at all envious of the numbers they have? Because I don't think when you were when you were a teenager making it on there, there were that many people of your age and moving up the rankings with you, like like they have. Not really, because honestly, I liked it at the yeah. time. I mean, I kind of liked the separation that I that I created. Um, you know, 
like I said, I mean, everything that I, that I did as far as, uh, you know, my goals, I mean, I, I wanted to be that guy that was just like, I mean, more than, more than anyone wanted it for me. Right. I, I wanted to be, you know, 40 to 30 to 10 to, you know, boom. Yeah. That, I mean, I wanted that more than anybody. Who doesn't? You know? yeah. yeah. And so, um, you know, it, it was tough. I mean, it's, it's tough not have it, to have a setback, you know. I mean, there's obviously times in your life that you sit there and you think about it. And you're like, God, I just wish I would have done that different. And, you know, if I could go back. And then that's whenever it's so important, you know. Even, like, my brother or my dad or my coach or anyone that's around me, they can, you know, really say, shoot, dude, you've, you're, you've got, you know, still a lot ahead of you. You know, it's, I'm, I'm not 33. I'm 23, you know. Yeah. So, um and things change like that. I mean, how quick, let's just hypothetically think, how quickly people would jump back on my bandwagon if I finish next year, like inside of 30, you know, around, you know, at at 24, you know, I I would in no way, shape or form be someone that they didn't view could continue rising. It happens happens, happens like this year with like Benoit Pair. Yeah, exactly. He did the same thing. He went like top 30 to outside top 100 back to being top 30. Right. And and, and it happens quickly and people can get right back on the thing. And, and that's sort of, um, you know, that sort of volatility, I guess, is what, what the right word before yeah. just going up and down can happen because sports are so fractional and so mental. Um, but uh, my goal is very, very simple. I am working as hard as I possibly can. I mean, I've lost, I don't know, I've lost probably 10 pounds since this time last year. I was about 197. Now I'm 187, 186 around there. Um, I'm working real hard. I've, I'm still, you know, even the things that you wouldn't think about, like just the fact that I'm, I'm paying a, a coach every week to be with me whenever I obviously haven't, you know, made the money that I would have no. been making a year ago. I mean, people understand I probably lost $100,000 this year. I mean, that's honest to God. I mean, yeah. off of my total assets, I lost about $100,000 this year just writing like coaching checks and everything like that. Why? Because I'm completely invested in myself to get better. I mean, I believe that I can make all of that back and then more by investing you in myself. you got to bet on yourself. Yeah, I was yeah, talking about that. Other exactly, people were talking to Billy Heiser for yeah. this show too. Yeah, you have, to, you have to do that, you know. And, and um, you know, it's those sorts of things that, you know, you just it, – it's, uh, it's tough to – make people understand as a casual sports fan when I'm watching football on Sunday, I'm the first guy to be like, how do you miss that throw? I can make that throw. You yeah. know? And that's the same way that people watch tennis. So yeah. I kind of laugh and I try to think like that way whenever people are, you know, are doing the exact same thing to me. I'm like, all right, I get it. You know, like you, you, you want to, you want to get passionate about something. I'm the first guy who's kicking and screaming whenever the saints lose or whatever, you know, I, I love, being a sports fan as well so I think that you just learn um as you get older like I, like I was talking about four years ago opened myself up so much to you know to the volatility of just the world and, and how cruel it can be out there whenever people are I mean they'll, they'll say anything to you you yeah. know I mean anything and uh and then you try to mature yeah I was I, Lindsay Davenport was saying recently she sent Tom Madison Keys as her player now to yeah. Get off Twitter completely because you don't need the bad, and also you don't need the good. Right. You know, right. hearing that you're the best ever also right. doesn't necessarily isn't necessarily something but you that's need. A, but that's a great example, you know. Like, yeah. uh, like I mean, for example, like we, we talked about Nick. You know, um, he's always curious. Yeah, yeah. He's always all over all over Twitter and Facebook. People love the fact that he's super open. Okay, but his personality, who he is, and him being super open, he will still. Um, open himself up 
to backlash whenever yeah. whenever negative things happen, and it's going to be tough for him. And for him, he's just going to have to be extremely headstrong to you know to not let it change or affect his progression and who he is. And and um, and if he is, you know, then you know, good on him. He can do it. You know, that's great. But it, it, it definitely adds a different like curveball that you, that is really tough to get around sometimes. And um, you know, like a girl like Madison who's who's putting herself on the map and people are going, she can win a Grand Slam within a year or two, you know. She doesn't need to hear every time that she loses a Grand Slam that she's a bust. No. You know. No. Doesn't need to hear it. You mentioned yeah. you mentioned Nick. Some people yeah. probably want me to ask you but the last yeah. time we talked was after the yeah. Kokanakis dust that yeah. you had in Cincinnati. So it's everything kind of settled I from talked, that. You... I talked to Thanasi two days later. Okay. And we were literally laughing about it, like in in the lobby. And we, you know, we just like I, I told him why I was pissed, and he told me why he was pissed, and and I just said, look, you know. You'd be upset too, and he goes, "Yeah, I would have been upset too." I'm like, "All right, well, fair enough. That's it." And I mean, I shook hands, practiced with him like three days later. I mean, literally practiced with him in Winston Salem three days later. Um, I mean, anyone in their in their in, in their job has gotten mad at their boss or a coworker or yeah. anything like that. And if everything you said in, in your office was microphoned, I don't think anybody would have a job. You know? No. <laughs> so. Um, I think that just knowing Thanasi and him knowing me, we, we both know how to needle each other because I've hit with him a number of times yeah. and I, I know his coach really well. So we were, you know, we were definitely able to put that behind us and kind of go forward. So everyone who, who blew up thinking that we were going to go 12 rounds of a boxing <laughs> exhibition, you know, I'm sorry to disappoint, but he and I, I mean, we're, we're, it was, we're, it, was, it, was, it, was it was fun. You know, it was yeah. fun for while it lasted and, yeah. and, uh, you know, a lot of the guys out there, I mean, we're competing for our livelihood. So we'll, we'll battle out there. And, and then I have a ton of respect for him. You know, I hope he has a great year. What kind of feedback did you get for, for that from other guys? Oh, my gosh. Um, well, first of all, everyone wanted to know what happened. And then you had people who really, really, you know, supported the fact that I'd said something to the young guys. Yeah. You know, I got text messages from a lot of older guys yeah. that were just like, Good work, man. <laughs> and then, and then you have text messages from you know the younger generation who all support him, and and I guess not text messages, but more like uh, just backlash, people yeah. who support him, and all sorts of stuff. And everyone just like, I mean, drama's fun, you know. I mean, it's it's fun. That's why to we get, care yeah, about sports? It's why we care about sports. Yeah. You know, it's fun to be involved in. And and when I look back, I mean, that was a fun match. I mean, it was a three-hour <laughs> yeah. match, six and the third, and I was you know I was putting it on the line. It's like a quality night session. Yeah, it was I mean, weird. Yeah, and it was super super high level. I mean, it was yeah. fun. You know, that's a fun match to play. And um, you know, I, I would hope that. For what anyone says about me on the tennis court, for how you know fire I am, I mean, I would go have a beer with you or anyone else, you know, just to hang out, and relax, and watch sports, you know, yeah. because that's who I am. I mean, I, I'm. I feel like I'd, I'd like to say that aside from my tennis career, I would like to think that people respect me, and and that's you know that's part of why you know the Nazi and I saw each other two days later, and we just started laughing before they even <laughs> I saw him. We just started cracking up in the lobby before I even talked to him. Yeah. I was like, all right, let's. Let's get this out of the way, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and so you know, just it, kind of how it goes sometimes. Last thing on just or challengers in general, how so describe how your day to day is different here? Because I see like I mean, you're just people are just around yeah. more than yeah. I see at a normal tournament. I guess I don't know if it's Charlottesville's not that small a town, no. but like it just people just describe describe what what makes this different than being at a tour event and just your if you yeah. want to run through what a day in the life of Ryan Harrison is here I can give you like my rundown of sure. how of what I've done this week sure you know okay so I was training in Atlanta last week we drove in Friday night I drove three and a half hours and Saturday morning we drove another three and a half and I got here on Saturday afternoon 
practice for about an hour. Um, it's been, I don't know, 10, 11 months of playing now, so I'm icing my shoulder after every practice. So I, I, I hit, kind of ice down a little bit. Um, you know, then I get ready to practice on, on Sunday. I have the same routine uh, the day before I play every time. I hit in the morning for about an hour, and then I come back later for anywhere from 10 to 45 minutes, just depending on how I feel, just with my coach. And we just we hit and do a couple, like, cleanup stuff. So I did that on Sunday. Monday, I knew I was playing late, so woke up, did the exact same thing I did today. Hit a, hit about lunchtime, um, and then and like in between, you hang around here. Yeah, or? no, no, I go back. I'm yeah. like I'm, I'm heading out right now. Uh, I just hit it at one for thirty minutes, and now I'm gonna go and grab some food, change, and shower, and I'll come back here around four forty-five or five, whenever the doubles match is starting, and I'll wait until the match is about a set, set and a half done, and I'll go hit for ten, fifteen minutes because that's uh, that's like a some people do like a dynamic run, you know, sort of warm up right before they play. I like to do it physically hitting if I can, just because I like to feel the ball and it kind of just gets some stress out and, and relaxes me a little bit. So, you know, I'll be on one of these courts at like 545, 6 o'clock, you know, just kind of like hitting it out. And then from there, I'm just going to go straight up, change, shower, and, and it'll take me five minutes and walk out on the court and go. And then um, I try to stay as much around – my coach and just like a very select few people that I really, really like being around. Um, funniest thing is, is, you know, we, we had a conversation. I don't know if it was you and Winneka, maybe it was, it was Joe Kelly, Winneka. someone, yeah. you know, just like, I, I really, really like some of these young American guys. You know, I, I would love to, you know, like tomorrow's Thursday night, probably go watch a Thursday night game with Francis or one of these guys and, and hang out. Um, Cause first of all, I know that, that those sorts of guys are hungry and you want to be around that are hungry. And I also know that um, kind of like Andy did with me, but it was different. I can bring like a really high level of intensity to practice, you know, all the time, which, yeah. which is not that I have to say anything to them, but just bringing a good level of intensity. And they, you know, that, that can be, it can be like a pushing factor. Like they push me, I push them. I don't want to lose a baseline of the game to him in practice. He doesn't want to lose to me. And, and it, that's how you get better, you know, and, and that's kind of what you want to be around whenever you're here. Does it seem like the intensity is – that's the one sort of thing I've noticed mm -hmm. here is that I don't know if it's just I could see there's no player line, people aren't hiding, whatever. Right. Since people sort of get a little more casual about, like, warm-up routine – Intensity some type people, stuff at some people do. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's weird because the better you do, the more you're pampered, and then like you do more right stuff. Yeah. It's it's opposite than you would think. You know, you would think that you come down here and and it's easier to you know to work hard to get back up there, but it's almost like a trap because you get stuck thinking that casual is okay, but it's not because you you want to separate yourself to get back into into the top little little zone. Yeah. Awesome. Right. Thank you very yeah, much, Ryan. Course, man. You have like it. a uh, like a theme song or something. You want to pick an outro song to play you out here? Theme song. Is there a man. Ryan Harrison theme song? Um, I don't know. Or just something you like? Let's go with uh, I'm, I'm country man. Yeah, I'm gonna get that. <laughs> Where it's at. Uh, Dustin Lynch. That's right. good one. That sounds yeah. good. Thanks, man. Yeah. Thank you, Ryan, and thank you to Mike, Alex, and Billy as well. We'll be back to you next week. Me and Courtney together again. Thanks for listening. See you guys later. No, that ain't where it is. It's a 2 a.m. when she's reaching over. Fade a t shirt and off the shoulder. Dress up, her hair down, and a bob cap. Yep, yep. As long as I get that sweet little something late night kiss on a plain old train away back in the sticks. 
I slip, if she's there, that's where, yeah, yeah, that's where.